So what I want you to do this morning is actually open to the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be spending uh, most of our time uh, in there. Um, so John chapter 11 is where we'll be uh, spending our time this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, we say this most Sundays, if you're a follower of Jesus, welcome to Canterbury Gardens Community Church. Uh, if you're someone who's exploring the, the, the gospel, uh, we pray that you, if you haven't picked it already, we are a church that uh, desperately desires for people to understand that it's all about Jesus. Um, we talk about being a Christ-centered church. You may have picked it up this morning. Uh, or you might be someone uh, who is a little bit um, apathetic to the Christian faith. Uh, maybe you've just been brought along on this Sunday because it's part of the tradition. That's what you do on Sundays. We pray that you, your hearts will be stirred and affected and maybe even woken to who this Jesus is. Um, we as a church have been going through the Gospel of John, uh, and one of the things that we've been doing is we've been taking a deliberate sort of slow pace. And we've got really just this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we're going to pause it, and then we're going to pick it up again next year. Um, and so for us as a church, we're coming towards the tail end of this series or this section, uh, and one of the things that we've been discovering is that the Gospel of John uh, is sort of like picking up speed now. We've been discovering who Jesus is. He's been revealing more and more who he is. Uh, and, and that's been shown in a lot of the miracles that we've been exploring from the blind man who was born blind, now he's able to see. Uh, the idea, we've been talking about these ideas of signs and how signs are ultimately pointing that there's something about Jesus He's not just the Messiah, it, it points to a bigger uh, narrative, a bigger story. That he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing in him is where you find true life. And we've been discovering over and over again that Jesus has been revealing some sort of very uh, famous statements known as the I Am Statements. And these statements are significant in the New Testament in particular, actually in the whole story of the Bible, because it clearly points out that Jesus is God. That he and the Father are one. They're equal. And for this reason, uh, this is why that we've had these kind of words up here on the wall here. On this really wonky poster that I put up sideways. If that's been annoying you all day, please forgive me. Um, and also this wonderful um, piece of art that someone did for us. We've been remembering why John wrote the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs. It's up here on the screen. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of why we're exploring John. And so today we come to a very famous story. Uh, I was just sitting here before and my son pulled out his little kid's Bible and it's a, it's a famous story. It's the story of a man called Lazarus who is brought back to life. Uh, if you've grown up in the Christian church in particular and if you've grown up to Sunday school and so on, you most probably did that one of those little colorings, you know, where the kids are coloring in and Lazarus looks like he's a little mummy coming out of the tomb. Uh, or maybe you're, you're one of those people who thinks it's really funny to quote the show. To, you know, you say, I do know a verse from the Bible. My guess is you probably quote one of the verses from here. Jesus wept. Right? Everyone knows that verse. Now, we all come to a, a sort of a bit of an angle when it comes to this story, this very world-famous story. But I guess what this, this morning I want us to consider is two things. 
Firstly, I want us to consider the divine son. And secondly, I want us to consider the giver of life. The divine son and the giver of life. Let me pray. Jesus, you are the resurrection and life. So this morning I pray and ask that through your word that you will bring life to seeking souls, to weary hearts, and our apathetic wills. We ask that we walk away knowing you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the things that you find in life is there's a lot of uncertainty, right? There's things that you can't really sort of um, back up. You just know there are a few things in life that's very uncertain. Uh, but one thing is certain, 100%, we're all going to die. Welcome to Canary Gardens Community Church. Right? We're all going to face death. And the reality is that we've all tasted death in some sense whether if it's because we've been impacted by the reality of death because we've lost a loved one. Or maybe we are ourselves facing this trial right now. We know someone that we deeply care for is, in many sense, tasting the curse or stench of death. But see, death in the Bible is not just a physical death. There's also the picture of a spiritual death. This death is caused by sin. Uh, If you are new to the Christian faith or exploring the Christian faith, we say this often at Canterbury. Sin is not just a swear word. Sin is not saying those things that are bad and so on. Sin is ultimately a posture. It's in our hearts saying to the creator of the universe, to God, I will not live under your loving authority. I'm my own king. I'm my own God. And the impact of that is the Bible's description is there is physical death, That's why there is death now, physical death, and there's also spiritual death. In the verses that it's in front of us, Jesus is displaying firstly that he is the divine son, that he is the one who has full authority. And not only that, because he has authority, he is the giver of life. In the verses before us, in John 11, we meet a family, a family that seems to be well known to Jesus. A family that is Mary and Martha uh, and Lazarus. And it seems that the passage sort of unpacks for us that there's a close relationship between Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. They're very close to Jesus. This family may have encountered Jesus' grace and mercy. In a few chapters, you'll read again about Mary and Martha. But where we pick up the story is Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, has become sick. Uh, he's caught a fairly, in a sense, using modern-day language, he's used t- a terminal illness. And so when you have got someone who's really unwell and really sick, who's about to face death, and you've been traveling along with this Jesus, this Messiah, who's been revealing himself, they've seen him heal people. Where do you run to? The physician? No, you run to Jesus. So it makes sense. They run to this Jesus who's healed a blind man who was born blind. They run to this Jesus who fed 5,000 people. They run to this Jesus who healed a man at a pool and was able to walk again. They run to the Jesus who says, I am, revealing that he is the Messiah, but he also is, he and the Father are one. So it totally makes sense for them to run to Jesus, to get the news out there, to send messengers and tell that, to Jesus that Lazarus, the one that he loves, is sick, unwell. 
But I don't know if you picked it up in chapter 11. What does Jesus do? Drops everything and heads over there. Now have a look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Uh, Remember when I was saying to you that the very signs in the Gospel of John are to show something, to point to something. That Jesus is the divine Son. Uh, That's revealing the very purpose for this even sickness in God's plan is to bring glory to Jesus. And this is why in a few chapters earlier, Jesus has been revealing this, right? He's been saying, hey, actually, the Father and I are one. And when he's saying that, his, his very words, his actions are the very actions of the creator of the universe. That he has full authority to judge. He has full authority to give life because he is the divine son. And in this moment, what we're seeing is the the divine power of who Jesus is, that he is the sovereign one. Because only God can do this. No mere human is able to do this. Uh, this idea of Jesus explaining to uh, his disciples and to the people there, the sickness is not for death. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, hey, Lazarus is very getting sick is actually part of God's plan. At the end of the matter, yes, Lazarus will die. But the whole purpose of all of this happening is to glorify Jesus. And so we need to have this in mind as we unpack this passage. And, you know, if you're in Mary Martha's shoes or the messenger's shoe who's been sent this news, it almost sounds like Jesus' actions are a bit weird. What he's about to do. I mean... What they don't realize is Lazarus and his life and him getting sick is part of the biggest story of revealing Christ. So humanly speaking, when you read the passage, it feels as though Jesus is doing this odd thing. What does Jesus decide to do? doesn't drop everything. He makes a statement and he decides to stay two days longer before he heads to Judea. Now, even the thought of heading to Judea is not a good thing. Uh, because if you see in verse 8, the disciples are a bit concerned about that. They're saying, hey, it's probably not a good idea for us to go. And the reason for that is just actually in the previous uh, chapter, in chapter 10, in verse 31, what happened was Jesus is explaining and he says, hey, guess what? The Father and I are one. That's really not a good thing to say a bunch of Pharisees. He's saying that he's equal to God. And so they want to stone him. So that's fresh in the mind of the disciples. And they remind Jesus of this. And then all of a sudden, it sounds like Jesus goes on a bit of a tangent. It sounds almost weird. You see it in verse 9? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It seems like a bit of a weird tangent. I don't know if you know what I mean by tangents. You know, if you're in small group uh, at Canterbury Gardens or some sort of small group, there's always that one person known as the tangent person, right? And if you're not laughing, it's probably you. But, <laughs> you know, like you say something about on topic and they bring on something else to do with charts and stuff. I don't know. I don't know if you've experienced that. And so in a sense, when Jesus says the statement for the disciples, it doesn't quite make sense maybe. 
it seems a bit weird. I mean, the disciples are saying it's probably not a good idea for us to go. Then Jesus goes on this bit of a rant about the days. It sounds a bit like a tangent. But you know what? Jesus' words are never a tangent. He has a purpose for it. So this idea of this light of the world is nothing new in the Gospel of John, is it? We've already picked it up, right? Earlier on in John. So what in this moment, the Gospel of John is revealing that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, the day is short. There's only 12 hours in the day. The light of the world is here. That's Jesus Christ. He has a job to do. To shine light into the darkness. What is of the most darkest of dark? Death. Death itself. And Jesus is here to say he's here to drive its sting out. And so in verses 11 to 14, you have this dialogue going on. It feels as though the disciples aren't quite getting it. And like usually, if you're like me, when you read the disciples, you kind of, you know, shake your head and go, oh, those disciples, silly guys, can't believe they didn't get it. Well, you and I are a bit spoiled. (laughs) See, friends, what we're seeing really, I think, is the reality of the human heart in front of us. When noise is happening, when pressures are happening, when it feels as though life is uh, is out of control... And maybe even in this moment, both of them, in a sense, are talking about death. So the disciples are saying, hey, uh, Thomas particularly, look, I'm willing to die. It's like a bit of, okay, fine, I'll die kind of statement. They know that if they go, there's possibility they'll be stoned to death. So on one hand, they're facing death. And on the other hand, there's this guy called Lazarus who's ill and he will face death. So when when the noise is happening, when, when all these pressures are going on, it's very, very hard to see that God is actually in control. That nothing catches him by surprise. Not only that, in the context of this, the Son of God is in control. That's not just then, even now in 2019. Jesus is the divine one. And as the divine one, he is the giver of life. So they head off to see Lazarus, and based on Thomas's comment, uh, you get a sense that Thomas says, fine, we'll, we'll come with you. I guess we'll all die as well. And the language is there, oh, well, I guess we're all going to die. It's a bit of a pessimistic thing. But they arrive, and the news comes. See in John 11, 11 to 13. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Now, in all fairness to the disciples, Jesus is once again using language, it's biblical language, this language of sleep. Uh, it's another way of a euphemism. It's, a, it's language that's used specifically for believers to say that there is a day coming, there is sleep, but there's a day coming there will be woken again. They'll be woken again on that last day. So this is why Jesus is using this language that he's asleep. It's a rhetorical way of speaking. But see, what they don't understand is Jesus is actually bringing some beautiful things into light. That yes, 
Lazarus is asleep, but guess what? He's going to rise again. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing because he's the life giver. He's the divine son. He's the life giver. But we're going to see he's not just a life giver in the sense of the physical life giver, but he's the giver of life that is both the life that is eternal and spiritual. So it's understandable as you kind of read the story in the verses. Uh, Jesus hears that Lazarus has passed away. Jesus makes that statement. The sisters are understandably distraught that Jesus didn't get there earlier. Because in their mind, they know if Jesus had gotten there two days earlier, their brother would be alive. He would be fine. And then you have this beautiful dialogue between Jesus and Martha. Martha said to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Uh, Despite of the really sad news of her brother being dead, there's a sense of belief and trust in Jesus. But not only that, that Jesus is able to pray to the Father and God will answer his requests. There's a faith there. And maybe she's seen it herself. Maybe she has heard about it. So in a sense, she hopes And there's this dialogue between her and Jesus. And Jesus does say that he will rise again. And automatically, she thinks and assumes that Jesus is talking about that last day. You know, someone falls asleep on that last day, they'll be raised again. If you're using Christian language, if you talk to someone uh, who knows Jesus and they've passed away and their relative or someone says, yes, I'll see them again in heaven. She thinks that's what he means. But here in this moment... Jesus is clearly displaying that he is the life giver. Jesus wants to point out that her understanding of the resurrection is not enough. There's also present situation reality that Jesus wants to unpack with her. And this is constant in the fourth gospel. This is constant in the gospel language. If you're using um, theological terms, it's, used, it's known as realized eschatology. The idea... This is wonderful, true reality that Jesus is unpacking for her. As the divine son, as the one when he says, I am statements, he wants to display to those then, like Martha, and to us today, yes, the dead in Christ will rise. But it's only in him alone that you find true life and true resurrection. Anything out of that, you cannot find true life and true resurrection. This is why Jesus declares very openly and makes sort of this language of emphatic statement saying, I am the resurrection and life. Uh, Two commentators by the name of Josh Wordberg and Matt Carter in their commentary on the Gospel of John put this beautiful statement. I don't know if you can see it here up on the screen. They said, Jesus does not say, I can resurrect people and I have life. He says, I am the resurrection 
and I am the life. It's an emphatic statement. Our hope is not in an event, but in a person, Jesus. Nothing can hinder him from giving life because he doesn't have life. He is life. This is one of the ways Jesus is different from you and me. You have life, he is life. You can lose your life, he cannot and will not lose his life. He laid it down willingly. But his resurrection was proof that death could not take life from him. Because of this, friends, this is why we can trust Jesus for his very words. Because as the life giver, he alone is the one who's able to promise what he promises. He's the only one who can promise that anyone who believes in him will have life. Not just now, eternal life, but what is life to come. This is what life or salvation means. It's a promise of what is to come, but it's also a true reality, what we experience as followers of Jesus. Because he is the life giver. That anyone who believes in him shall never die. Friends, this is what it means if you're a follower of Jesus. This is why we are a people of hope. This is why we are a people of hope. Because of the promises of our life giver, Jesus Christ. And friends, I've got to ask you, just as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe? Do you believe? I mean, Martha's response was emphatic, yes. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah. She's seeing what's in front of her. And many of us are like that. We're like Martha. Yes, I believe in Jesus. He's, he's the Messiah. I believe that. But do we live our lives in such a way that we are known as a people of hope? Do we live as life, as a people who belong to the resurrection and life? See, our hope should not be alone in the day that is to come, which is a wonderful thing, but in the one who is the life giver. Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who has given us eternal life. He's the one who has given us eternal life now (laughs) and life that is to come. And this is why we can trust him completely because his promises are good and true. Because he says himself that he is the resurrection and life. This is the true experience now for those of us who know Jesus Christ. You know, this very statement in our day and age has significant implications. It's a reminder to you and I that Jesus alone is the author of life. Not you, not me. Not the culture that we live in. In a sense, we shouldn't be shocked that the culture is going after things like abortion and euthanasia. Another way of saying, no, no. We will be the ones who decide who has life and who doesn't. It's an empathic state, in a way of saying a statement to Jesus Christ that you're not king, we are. Because another implication is that if this is truly our experience, especially if you are someone who's exploring the Christian faith, I want you to know that you will not actually find life by looking within yourself. You actually need to look away from yourself to one who is the resurrection life. And if his claims are true, which they are, there are significant 
consequences for the rejection of who he is. And so, friends, if that is you, we plead with you to explore these statements by Jesus, that you will receive his resurrection and life, that you will experience his promises today. Christian friend, you yourself might be going through a really tough trial right now. You may know someone who's facing death themselves. Know you have hope. You have hope. You have already eternal life. And know that your suffering and trial is not a waste. It is to bring glory to our Saviour. So we would invite you to come to him just as his sisters did, just as Lazarus' sisters ran. Maybe just come and cry. Maybe come and ask to God to maybe heal or take you home because Jesus is the resurrection and life. So you can rest in the arms of the giver of life. And because Jesus is the divine son and the giver of life, Jesus actually intimately knows also in this moment, in these passages, seeing an in humanity coming through. So Martha goes and tells her sister, and Mary uh, heads to see Jesus, and she literally repeats exactly what her sister said. Now, in this section of the passage, you, you, it's easy for us, if you know Christ, and if you've been sort of read the stuff before, to gloss over it. But it is a beautiful picture of, of Christ in this world. I mean, these two sisters have just lost a brother. He's actually been dead for four days. Uh, If you've ever lost someone so dearly, you probably know the pain that they're going through. They know that this Jesus could have prevented his death. But in this moment, both to them and to us, in the very section that we have in front of us, Jesus displays the reality this was not how life was meant to be. See, now when Mary came to where Jesus was in verse 32 and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept his man from dying? Now friends, remember I've been exploring that Jesus is the divine one. The one who said that he is the resurrection and life. No question about it. This one who is about to come and give life, literally, to a four-day dead corpse. To bring it back literally to life. He sees the tears. He hears the wailing. And you see in verse 33, right? When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And it talks about Jesus himself weeping. So when we see Jesus in this moment, he's seeing and hearing people crying. And the language here, the English translation doesn't really help in this, in that... It just talks that he himself cried and he himself was troubled. No, it's kind of a better way to put it. He shuddered. He's hearing and seeing the scene around him. It's a dual picture of a savior who is wrestling in the sense of there's frustration and trouble in his inner heart. 
I don't think Jesus was crying in the sense that Lazarus is dead. And I don't know if he was necessarily frustrated with the people, maybe a little bit. But the kind of emotion is what's displayed is Jesus wept. Now, the language here is not the same as Mary and Martha and the people crying. It's a different kind of language. It's the kind of um, outrage that's being stirred in Jesus, within Jesus, as he hears and sees what's going around him. And he sees this moment where this sort of frustration and pain that leads him to crying because this is the consequence of sin and death. The stench of death is in front of him. And there's this unbelief that's going on around that stirs, in a sense, an outrage in him. It's a mixed, tangible way of seeing Jesus wept. John Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, puts it this way. Those who follow Jesus as his disciples today do well to learn the same tension, that grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance and hot-tempered anger. Friends, I don't know if you know this, but death was not part of God's plan. It is a stenchful thing in this world. It's actually a violation of the way that life was meant to be. And in this moment, what we're seeing is Jesus having this duality of grief, not for Lazarus, but for the invasion of sin and death into this world. And the very reality, what we're seeing in the verses, is man's disbelief. Friends, this is why as Christians, on one hand, we shouldn't become numb to death. That's why it's okay to grieve over death and its disgusting sting. But we are a people that should not wail without hope, especially those who have passed away that know Christ. And for those of you who are facing suffering and trial, I want you to know that, you know, in that moment, I think as Christians we play it down a little bit when we hear that news and we know someone who's suffering and they're like, oh, I'll just sort of push it away because I'm a Christian. I shouldn't think that. This is a frustration going on by Christ. So it's okay to take your frustration and outrage and grief to the life giver because this is not how it's meant to be. But friend, your suffering and trial is not wasted at all. You can come to the one who wept. You can ask him to help you to weep, not with hopelessness, but with hope because he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus has moved again and the, the language speaks. He heads to the, the graveside of this big tomb and they ask to roll away the stone. In verses 40 to 43, we have this. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In this moment, what we're seeing is the divine son. He knows exactly what's going to happen. 
and much more than just doing a miracle of this wonderful, powerful miracle of bringing someone physically to life. It's an actual display of God revealing himself through his Son, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This Son who approaches God as the Father, because he intimately knows him. This is his intimate relationship. He has an all-access pass to the Father. This one who already knows that the Father has answered. He says, you've heard and you will always hear me. It's a beautiful language to display, showing that the very thought of Jesus and his actions are not his own. They're interconnected with the Father. And whatever he does is what the Father desires. And so the Son asks and the Father grants. And earlier in John, we know why. Because in his baptism, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The only reason he's saying it out loud is for the crowd around him. Because he wants to clearly display to everyone there that he is the resurrection and life. Whether if it's the people who are crying and thinking, wow, what a loving guy. He really cares for Lazarus. Or to the people who are questioning him now. Hey, isn't this the guy who, you know, was able to heal someone but now can't even heal this sick person, didn't even get here in time? Jesus wants to display clearly that he is the divine son, the life giver. He's the resurrection and life. So he says, Lazarus, come out. One of my favorite commentators put it this way. Imagine for a moment... If Jesus said, come out, and didn't use Lazarus' words, uh, Lazarus' name, being the life giver, maybe all of the tombs would have emptied in that day. A few chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually talked about in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In this moment, the life giver is literally giving life to his stinky old four-day dead corpse. I mean, what's the point? Is it about the sign? Is it about this amazing miracle? Or maybe it's the point to this Lazarus guy. Friends, no. It's the point to Jesus, the resurrection and life. This is why we have this story in front of us. Yes, it was an amazing, powerful miracle. But it is so that you and I are captivated by who Jesus is, that he is the resurrection and life. But this resurrection and life is the only God who is willing to come into this world and experience death himself. Who is willing to go to the cross on your behalf and mine. Who is willing to experience the stench and pain and the effects of sin and death on your behalf and mine. This one who hung on the cross, who himself cried out because of the pain that he was feeling and the wrath of the Father on your behalf and mine. And he breathed his last breath, and he gave up his spirit. He himself experienced death, and he knows death well. 
Yes. Because of who he is, that he is the resurrection and life. On the third day, he physically rose again. And unlike Lazarus, who needed someone to call his name, Jesus just came out. Unlike Lazarus, still tied up in the clothes that he was, Jesus neatly tied down the clothes. The stone was rolled away. He came out because he is the resurrection and life. Because he is God. Christian friends, if you know Jesus, this is the reality now. You too will be raised on that day. You and I are still having the effects of the decaying reality of sin and death. We are surrounded by it. But if you are in Christ, you have eternal life now. It is yours now. It's a gracious gift that God has given you. And so you and I can live with hope, even as we face death. This is the hope we bring to those who are in the stench of death around them. Jesus is the divine son, the life giver. Friends, if you are going through a trial and suffering now, or if you know someone that is, pray that you will take in comfort to know your sin has been conquered through the resurrection and life of Jesus Christ. He is a giver of life, and we pray Your hope is in him. Friend, if you're seeking the good news of the gospel, maybe exploring, I want you to make this very clear to you. You need to take Jesus' claim seriously because there's eternal consequences if you don't. Because there's a day coming he will return. There's no doubt about it of who he is. So we'd explore you to come and ask us those questions. So friends, this week, as we head into our week, I don't know about you, when I saw that picture that Rob showed uh, about that place of the drought, reality of drought, but it's lifeless. Using this idea that Jesus is the life giver, he's the resurrection life, there are many who are lifeless spiritually. You're not here by chance. God has called you in his mission to go and share this. So who can you encourage this week with this truth? That Jesus is the resurrection and life. Friend, if you're suffering, maybe you've lost sight that God is actually in control. Know that your Savior is in control. So find confidence in the resurrection and life despite of your circumstances. Mums and dads, how are we shepherding our kids to find hope in the resurrection and life, not in the things of this world? Friends, if you are in a retired season, are you finding your hope in your super retirement funds or wonderful things to set aside for? What would it look like if Jesus was the resurrection life of all of your things? Maybe your focus needs to focus on eternal things, not temporal things. As you work this week, as you lead companies, as you manage in your role, Remember to live as a people who have eternal life, living under his loving authority, because Christ is the resurrection and life. And you will not find hope in temporal things, but eternity in mind. And as we close, the author of John later would write again. Uh, He's exiled for the gospel, and he's praying to Jesus, and he sees this glorious vision of Christ. In Revelation 1, When I saw him, I fell at his feet 
as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the divine Son, the one who lives forevermore, the giver of eternal life. Let me pray. Jesus, you are the resurrection and life. For those of us who know you, we bow at your feet. Thank you for giving us life now. For those of us who don't know you, stir our hearts to be encountering who you are. For those of us in trial and suffering, facing death itself, help us to find hope in your wonderful words. In Jesus' name, amen.